And being that this past Sunday I was compelled to speak about a certain area of the portion of the week, so this evening we'll deal with a different part of the portion of the week, uh, just as important as any other part of the portion. Um, the discussion that comes up at the end of the, um, the parsha is the final test that Abraham has in his life. <coughs> the Nisayan Asiri, the tenth test that um, Abraham was presented with in his life, the test of the binding of Isaac. Essentially, we know, just to review it briefly, God comes to Abraham and says, I, have, I would like to, um, I'm requesting you to take your son, the son that you waited till 100 years old to have, and now have enjoyed 37 years together with, and I want you to bring him up as a sacrifice. And obviously, there was a lot that Avram, that Abraham could have asked about this. First of all, all of Abraham's life he preached that human sacrifice was anti-religious. And it wasn't a statement of, of religion, but it was anti-religious. Uh, secondly, it was... It was um, it was the greatest present that Abraham had gotten in, in this world, and he couldn't understand, seemingly, why he should have to give up this present for his own self, personally. And secondly, because Yitzhak also represented the continuity of what Avram had dedicated his life to. And this Nisayan, this test, is called the test of the binding of Isaac, and the Chumash details to us how Avram didn't question, didn't open up his mouth to question, though he was able to ask many questions, and he went ahead with, without delay, and he prepared himself and his son Yitzchak to go to the place which God would designate to be the place of sacrifice. The Torah tells us how Abraham prepares the altar and Isaac is put on the altar and bound to the altar and a moment before Abraham is about to go through with, with the, this test an angel comes and says don't touch him because now I know unequivocally that you have a true respect and reverence and awe for God, because you were prepared to do this, how difficult it might have been. And Avram petitions with God, let me at least be matl by mum, let me at least hurt him a little bit, let me at least let a little blood, which is a very peculiar kind of a request. And God says, no, don't even touch him. And God arranges that there should be an aisle, that there should be a ram in the proximity of the altar that was sacrificed in place of the sacrifice of Isaac. And then God makes promises to, to Abraham in terms of the continuity of that which would become the Jewish people. I'd like to start this evening, uh, and that's really just saying it all in a nutshell, I'd like to start this evening with sharing with you uh, a very interesting, a very interesting um, piece of information that one of our commentaries tells us which seems to be not terribly important, though very inspirational, 
And then as we develop what's really going on over here, we'll come back to this and we'll really understand the extent of what this is supposed to mean. The commentaries tell us that the moment before Abraham was prepared to go through with that which God had asked him to do, the Talmud says that the angels in heaven lined up in rows before the heavenly court and began to cry to God for mercy and compassion, that Yitzhak should not be sacrificed. This is what the commentaries say. So, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Malbim who says that the concept of the angels crying that Yitzhak should not be sacrificed is the following. Every single angel that was crying was created to begin with by Abraham's intent to do what God had asked him to do. Now, being that, in reality, God never intended that Yitzchak should be sacrificed, would Abraham go through with it, that would destroy those angels. Because even though in intent, God wanted to test Abraham's intent, and it was the good intent of Abraham to pay attention and pay heed to God that created the angels, but were Abraham to go through with it and actually sacrifice Isaac, which was against the will of God, that would have destroyed the very angels that he created. So when the angels cry, they're crying because they sense the danger of their own destruction. Because now that it's a moment before, now that it's a moment before the actual sacrifice of Isaac, if Abraham will go through with it, it will make these the angels that were positive angels vanish because that was in fact not the will of God and hence the concept of the crying of the angels. Now this is a very, very mystical interpretation to the crying of the angels. We would say very simply that the angels were committed to, to world purpose in the way that God saw world purpose and Yitzhak would be able to accomplish it but Yitzhak not being alive certainly wouldn't be able to accomplish it and therefore they cried. But this Malbim seems to give a very interesting mystical definition to the crying of the angels. I would like to explain this. I'd like to explain the significance of this commentary this evening. What's the significance of this? Now, we have to know that the entire book of Bracious, which we're starting somewhat a little bit late, it's already the, uh, the fourth portion within the book, the entire book of Bracious is referred to as Sefer Yitzirah, the book of creation. And it's not called the book of creation only because of the first chapter or two that deals with the creation of the six days. It's called the book of creation, it's called the book of creation because virtually everything that happened, everything that happened in the book of Genesis was in fact creation. What Abraham and Isaac did, what Sarah Rivka Rachavaleya did, what Jacob did, what all of the forefathers, what the patriarchs and matriarchs did all through the different portions of Bracious were creative in nature. They were spiritual creations. They created the spiritual potentials of what would in the future become the spiritual genes of a Jewish people. 
so far does it go that in the ethics of our fathers it says that some of the characteristics of a Jew are by shanim rachmanim gaimle chasadim. They have shame, they have compassion, and they had do acts of loving kindness. And the concept and the Gemara details and shows how each one of the patriarchs was responsible for one of those characteristics. So if you want to know, if you want to know the um, the the quality, or if you want to ascertain the um, the true um, identity of an individual, you can rest assured that he's if he claims to be Jewish, that he is Jewish if you find these if you find these traits. Where did these traits come from? These traits came from the spiritual creations of everything that they were challenged in life and accomplished in life. And this became and therefore the entire book is a book of creation. What I'd like to discuss this evening is that there are many things that we do in life that are creative in nature. What I'd like to discuss tonight is how a Nisayon how a test, how a challenge is creative. There are many things. I do an act of loving kindness. That's creative in nature. I help somebody. That's creative. Uh, I make an intellectual contribution to society. That's creative. These are all creative things. But one of the things which permeates the book of Genesis is the concept of nisayon, which means a test, a challenge. Abraham te had ten of them in his life. How does the Nisayon work with the concept of Yitzira, the concept of creation? What's the parallel? What's the relationship between Nisayon being tested and creation? It's interesting to note that the concept of creation is so dramatic is that when it says that when Abraham took up the knife to go through with the sacrifice of Isaac, it says, He took up the knife. So the question is why a knife is called a macheles. So Rashi says, because it's ocheles habasa, because it eats through the flesh. That's the literal translation. It comes from the root word ochel. Another interpretation, Rashi says, is shebechal hadayris Yisrael ochlem mischus that all generations eat from the merit of the binding of Isaac. So, so far does the concept of creation go that after Abraham created it, we all eat from it. In other words, Abraham made the meal and we're all eating from that meritorious meal. That's the extent of creation. But what does that mean? And what does it mean in particular in the concept of Nisayan, in the concept of test, and in particular in the concept of the tenth test, the tenth, of the, tenth test of the binding of Isaac? There's a lot to talk about in relationship to Nisayon, test. There's a lot to talk about. There are many aspects to, to Nisayon, to test. First of all, there's an aspect to test which the Medrash ta tells us is Very often we feel when we are tested that it's unfair and that God's doing something that I can't prevent though I would like to resist it. So Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, God's the boss, he can do what he wants, and what can we say about it? And that's an expression that's used in regard to test, as if to say that there is an inner resistance, which is part and parcel of the test. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aspect of the test where there's a resistance that we have. God, why are you doing it? Why can't I choose 
how to develop, and why are you putting this on me? Right? It seems to be unfair. I'm not ready for it. I have better ways of growing, and so on and so forth. This is one difficulty with tests. Another more obvious difficulty with tests is that we all know that testing is usually used as a, one of the reasons for testing is the teacher's barometer of how well the student has absorbed the knowledge. In other words, I've taught a course, the students have either slept through it or learnt it. The only way to conclusively establish the extent of knowledge that the person has gained, will he pass the course or fail the course, will he have to go over the course or can he go on to the next course, is by what will his mark be on the, on the test. But that concept of test certainly doesn't exist in relationship to God because God certainly knows where a person's at and what's happening with a person and that God should need it as a tool to know where man is, is, is not logical. It doesn't make sense if we believe that God is knowing and that God is involved and that God understands the inside of everything that's going on inside of a person. So we have to understand what it's all about, but it gets even more perplexing because one would quickly say, no, the purpose of a test is not for God, it's for the benefit of the human being. The human being grows from it, which is something which we'll talk about. But the Medrash seems to suggest not like that. The Medrash seems to suggest that there is a benefit that God has from testing us. And let me give you an example of this, in particular in regards to the tenth test. God opens up the tenth test by saying the following words to Abraham, by Yehma Hashem el Avram, Kachna, please take. Bincha Yechidcha, your son, your only son, the one that you love, Yitzvak, Vahaleula and bring him up as a sacrifice. So the Talmud remarks about this that God is conforming to etiquette. Kachna, please. Okay? We usually vision God envision God as telling us what to do, not requesting. Kachna, please. So the Medrit, the Gemara answers this, and the Gemara says, Please, Abraham. Please pass this test. I beg you, you have to pass this test. Because if you don't pass this test, the war is lost. The individual battles you might have won, but the war you lost. And the Gemara, just in case we don't understand what this means, the Gemara says, what is this a comparison to? To a king who has a very successful general, and the general is, um, is victorious on any, every battlefront, but then there is one major battle that has to be won, and if that's not won, all of the previous victories are insignificant. So the king calls in his general and says, you're wonderful, you've, you've been victorious, but if you don't win this one, it's as if nothing was accomplished. The kingdom will go down. This is what the Gemara says. And with this, the Gemara expects us to understand God's request of Abraham. You are my general. You've passed so many and so many tests. But the war that I want to accomplish, the war that I want to be victorious with, with the world, will not be won, will not be won, unless you, win, if, unless you pass this test. Now, without going into what this is all about, one thing is clear. God has a vested interest in Abraham's succeeding at the test. He has a vested interest. Which, by the way, happens to be another thing that we suffer about. We sometimes are suspicious that God 
has a vested interest that we should fail in the test. And not that we should be successful in the test. But God has a vested interest. My question is, what's God's vested interest? What is the vested interest that God has? <clears throat> Let's go a little bit further. There's an interesting madrash, a very, but a confusing one, in regards to the binding of Isaac. Avram says, after everything is over, after the binding of Isaac is over and God says, don't touch him and don't go and don't do anything, you've proven yourself. Avram, in retrospect of everything that happened, says, I have something to say. I have a statement to make. I have something to say. In the past, God told me, Abraham, you have no worry. Yitzchak will be the continuity of your family and from him will build itself a whole Jewish people. That was one statement that God made to me and he, and he made it solid with a promise, with an oath. Then yesterday he comes to me and he says, He says, take that Yitzchak that you promised me would be the continuity and you tell me, and, then, and you tell me, sacrifice him. And he says, and then, when I'm ready to do it, you back off and you say, Don't touch him. This is what Avram says. In other words, essentially what Avram seems to be expressing here is utter confusion. First you promise me the continuity. Then you tell me, sacrifice Yitzhak. Then you back off and you say, Essentially what Avram is saying, what's happening here? What did you think originally? And where did you change your mind? And You know, like what's happening? So God says, and this seems to be a very cute answer on God's part. God says, Avram, I never told you to slaughter Yitzchak. Look at what I said. I never said shachtayu. I never said slaughter him. I said halayu. Lift him up to the altar. No, halayu. You lifted him up and you took him off. So I don't know what you're confused about. This is what the Medrash says. Now, seemingly... What this medrash, this medrash seems to be cute, but seemingly the best that we can make of this medrash is that after the whole test was over, Avram, God is saying to Avram, you didn't understand what I really meant. When I said, in other words, God never lies. If I said shechteyu, if I said slaughter him, that's what would happen, but I never said it. All I said was halayu, and that you did. You brought him up and you took him off. It would this medrash seems to suggest that what, uh, what was really going on over here is that Avram missed the boat. That all that God really expected was to take him up on the altar and then to take him off. But we know that it's not that way. First of all, we know that Avram was a Navi. He was a prophet. He was very clear in his prophecy. If he had any doubt about what God meant, he certainly wouldn't have gone through with what would have been if he would have made a mistake murder. So when Avram went through with it, he was absolutely sure. You know, the negative inclination came to Avram and said to Avram, you know, you're a little old. You have the hardening of the arteries. Maybe the, maybe the Sahara told you to do this. So Avram said, no, 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 no. I know when God talks to me and God talked to me and God definitely told me that I have to do this. So there's no question that Avram had a tremendous clarity. Okay? Nevertheless, in retrospect, God says, ha ha, I wasn't the liar. All I said was Haleo. What is that supposed to mean? That's troublesome. 
<coughs> so let's try to analyze. Let's try to analyze what's going on over here. There's no question that a test has a threefold purpose. And the Medrash makes this very clear to us. A test has a purpose for the person that's living through the test, which is referred to as to'eles hamenusa, a purpose for the one that's being tested. It has a purpose for the world, because it makes a statement to the world, to'eles ha'olam. And it also has to'eles hamenase, the one that is the, uh, coordinating the test also. There's a purpose for, for that as well. And this is communicated through a very interesting medrash. The medrash says that God only tests people that have the quality and the spiritual stamina to grow from a test. And the medrash says it in three ways. If a person has good flax, when he beats it to get rid of the chaff, he's left with something. If it's a poor quality flax, he beats it, there's nothing left. So God only tests the one that is good quality because the test will leave a good product and the person won't fall apart totally. That's one. The Medrash says another example, just in case you didn't understand that example, the Medrash says that when they used to sell pottery long ago, the way that pottery was sold is that you knocked on it. And depending upon the sound, you were able to know if it was a good quality pot. So the Medrash says a good pot gave off a good sound, a bad pot gave off a dull thud, a lousy sound. So the Medrash says in the same way, God tests or knocks the vessels that he knows will ultimately give out the good sounds, as opposed to the ones that won't. And then the Medrash says, just in case you didn't grab that example, I'll give you a third example of the farmer that has a field to plow and to seed. And has two animals, one healthy as an ox, right, and one sickly. So even though, logically, you would split up the work between two animals and each one would do half, but because of the nature of one being strong or one being weak, the stronger one will do a majority of the work. These are the three examples that the Medrash says. And the Medrash says, with that, I want you to understand the concept of God testing. So the commentaries explain that each one of these examples is pointing to another accomplishment of a test. The example of the flax is pointing to the accomplishment of the person. What is accomplished within the person through his test? Through his test, he gets rid of the chaff. He gets rid of the nonsense. He gets rid of the things that are not the priorities in life, and he's left with the quality. He's left with, with focusing on what the true meaning of life is and without the, the diversions which have been taken from him anyway in his situation of test. So he comes to, to reckon with what's important and what's not important. The concept of the vessel, the vessels giving out the sounds, is the concept of the benefit that the world has. Sound is what a person hears. That's the benefit of the world. By passing a test, it's not only to your benefit that you become a bigger person, but the world learns from you. And that's the, the example of the vessels. And finally, the example of the farmer is the concept that God has a farm. The farm is this world. And he has to plow and seed it in order to produce the fruit that he wants for his world. And he gives the job over to humanity. But who in humanity gets the major job? The stronger ones get the major job. And that's the example of the farmer. 
So essentially, what this medrash is saying is that in every test, there is, an, there, is a, there is a benefit to the one that's being tested, to the world that learns from the accomplishment of the test, and to God who tests the person. This is essentially what the medrash says. Now, what I would like to propose this evening is that though there's no question that these are three unique benefits, when we come to the final test of Isaac, certainly, the final test, the binding of Isaac test, these three benefits, the benefit of God, the benefit of Avram, and the benefit of the world, all converge together, and they all become one. And this is what I'd like to explain this evening, how that happens. Let's analyze the binding of Isaac. Let's get into it. Let's, but let's analyze what was going on in the binding of Isaac. <clears throat> One could say that the accomplishment of the binding of Isaac wasn't in the realms of action, for in the reality, Avram did not go through with the binding of Isaac. He went up until, but did not go through. So if a person would ask you the question, bottom line, did he do it or didn't he do it? In the, in the realms of Olam HaMais, in the, world, in the realm of the reality of doing or not doing, Avram, after everything is said and done, we can only say that he wanted to do, but he didn't do. Now that's not incriminating, because God told him not to do. But after everything said and done, the bottom line is, he was operating in the world of intentions, in the world of wanting to do but not doing. Right? Seemingly, that's what we would think. It was in the world of Machshava. And therefore, one would look at the binding of Isaac and say that the accomplishment of Avraham was in the dedication and love with which he was prepared to do and with the thought and the premeditation of doing it. In other words, we always talk about the fact that the human being has three major faculties. The faculty of thought, the faculty of speech, and the faculty of action. If one would want to categorize the binding of Isaac, in which department does it excel? Obviously, it excels in the department of Machshava. It, it excels in the department of thought. The department of thought is bro broken into two parts. The, the planning, the process, the thinking about it, the working it out, the developing it, the methodology, and obviously also the heart that went into it. These would be the two parts of it. Ha'ahava, the love, the ha'machshava, and the thought, the, the, and we have many examples of this. We have many examples of this. In terms of the dedication and the love that went into it, the emotional aspect of it, we know that the minute that God told Abraham to do this, he immediately woke up the next morning bright and early. He didn't take an extra snooze to delay what God had asked. He gets up early in the morning. If God asks me to do this, I'm going to do this because of my love of God. And he gets up early to do it. And he doesn't wait for a servant to saddle his horse. He himself saddles his horse. There's no time to waste with help. I'm going to do it myself. God gave me something to do. Even the preparations for it are important and should be done expediently. These are expressions of, of, of Avram's 
love, his dedication to doing a difficult thing that God had asked him to do. Going on in terms of the dedication, we know that Abraham did not take a bottle of Valium before he bound Isaac to the Mizbeach, to the altar, to space himself out, to get himself so out of, out of contact with reality that he would just get it done. And this points to the point that I was making before. The entire event of Avram with Yitzchok was not in the world of getting something done. Avram understood that God wasn't talking about getting something done. God, Avram understood that what God was, was, was uh, expecting from him was giving over his thought, giving over his dedication, giving over his feelings, giving over his love. And therefore, what did Avram do? Instead of taking volumes, when he put Yitzchak on the, on the altar, he looked right, right into Yitzchak's eyes and Yitzchak into his. In order to bring back all of the memories the fond memories of everything in the past 37 years, in order, yes, to build up the passionate love that they had for each other. And Avram would, when, only when he had built up the most passionate memories of love that he had for Yitzchak and Yitzchak for Avram, then they would go and do what God said. But why? Because Avram understood that God, what God wanted over here was the heart. God wanted to see that there would, there's a supreme love, the love of God. It's very interesting. It's very interesting when we talk about the dedication. I'd like to share with you something that's not common knowledge. When Yitzchak was being tied to the altar, he said to his father Avram, he said, Father Avram, tie me to the altar tightly. Avi, kafseini yafe yafe. Just watch the wires. Avi, kafseini yafe yafe. Tie me tightly. And there's a difference of opinions why Yitzchak asked for this. According to one opinion, it was because when he would see the knife coming down, he would naturally jerk. And Yitzchak said that would be a chutzpah. Because if God wants it to happen, for me even to give a natural yeah. jerk, to, to, to seemingly resist it, that's a demonstration of chutzpah. Now that's a demonstration of tremendous dedication. According to another opinion, it was that he feared that he might jerk and hurt and, and hit his father purely by accident out of fright. And jerking, he would hit his father. And if he would hit his father, that would be opposite Kibrav Now, it's very interesting. Yitzhak had nothing else to think about a moment before he left the world except the natural instinctive jerk. That would, anyway, not help him. And he referred to it in that way. So that's tremendous dedication. <clears throat> On the other hand, there is also a lot of, in terms of examples, not only of dedication, but of how much thought went into the Akedah, went into the binding of Isaac. You know, some of us think that God came to Abraham and said to Abraham, take your son and, and sacrifice him. And instantly Avram was, put in, was in shock. And he went through everything like a robot out of shock. But if one looks at the Chumash very clearly, God said, this is something that I want you to do in the future. 
and I want you to travel for three days and three nights to that particular place. They had loads of time to think and to share together and to turn back if they didn't want to listen to God. They had three days to think it over. In terms of, in terms of, the, in terms of thinking it out, we, th we see very clearly, we see very, very clearly that they had the time for it. They, ha they had the time for it, and they didn't do it out of shock or anything like that. And look at, look at how Avram reacts when God says, don't, don't, don't do what I told you to do. What's Avram's reaction? My reaction would be, tie him, uh, un untie him as fast as you can before God changes his mind again, and get out. Skip out of town. And Avram, no. Avram is so intent on accomplishing that Abraham wants, Abraham wants to do some kind of a token act that would, would represent what God did. One way or the other, one way or the other, there's something which is very clear here. The thing that's clear over here is that the development of Avram and Yitzhak in the binding of Isaac was in the realm of dedication, in the realm of emotions, and in the realm of thoughts not in the realm of actions. Now let's deal with that. A person comes to you and says to you, you know, I'm very spiritual. For the last 20 years, I've been thinking about doing a mitzvah. I think about it when I wake up in the morning. I think about it during the day. I go to sleep planning to do it tomorrow. I've been doing this for the last 20 years. I must be very spiritual. He hasn't done it. But he's been thinking about it for 20 years. Now, the reality is that with all of the thinking that we do in this world, okay, until we actually do something, it doesn't really count. Now, there are many different ways of understanding this. The simplest way of understanding it is that if a person really wants, he gets it done. And if he doesn't get it done, it's an indication that he hasn't fully developed his ratzon, his will to do it. If the will to do it is there, it gets done. This is why psychologists tell you that when they go, when they, when when they help a person in, in therapy, and they tell the person, I want you to do this, and the, the patient says, I'll try, okay, the psychologist sees red. I'll try means I'm not going to do it. Right? That's what I'll try means. In other words, in other words, trying, try, in other words, the statement, I want to do, I want to do, I intend to do, without doing, is, means that there hasn't been a complete rutzone to do. All right. If there isn't a complete rutzone, if there isn't a complete will to do, so the person hasn't accomplished anything, the person hasn't done anything. The first time that we see the demonstration of the will to do being equivalent to actually doing it is the binding of Isaac. In other words, that the intensity of wanting to do is so supreme that God says that even though you didn't do it, it's as if you did it, is the binding of Isaac. In other words, Avram worked out that a person can develop 
in the realms of will, in the, well, in the realms of thought, that a person, even without doing it, in the reality, can, can generate enough spiritual intensity that if it gets done in the end or not, because somebody from the outside prevents it from being done, that's totally circumstantial. In other words, and this is what Avram's whole concern was. When God said to Avram, you've passed the test, Avram says, no, I haven't passed the test, because all of the wanting in the world is still not doing. So let me do something, Tim, to, that at least represents the, the manifestation of the will in the reality of doing. Let me do something to him. It wasn't that Avram was bloodthirsty or that Avram appreciated seeing blood. But what Avram was concerned with is that all of the wanting in the world is still not doing. And doing is the reality and not wanting. Let me do something that manifests the will, brings the will into the realms of reality. So God said, no, you do not have to do that. Because you so, so much want to do my will that in my eyes you did it. In my eyes it's accomplished. Don't touch him. The concept of the ram being found around the altar and then and we t the Medrash tells us that the, uh, Abraham took it and put it on the altar and envisioned that it was Yitzchak and everything that he did with the ram he envisioned that he was doing it with Yitzchak What's going on over here? It's still not Yitzchak, it's a ram. But what is Abraham doing? I am going to do every iota possible in the development of will. If I don't do every iota possible, it's not done. In the realm of will, there has to be a total will. If there isn't a total will, but I push myself to doing it very often, by pushing myself to do it and actually getting it done, that actually makes me more in line with the will. Because I do it, and then I come to, to appreciate it. But if I'm not ever going to get to actually doing it, but I only want to do it, Avram had to look through every spiritual nook and cranny to make sure that there wasn't a vestige that resisted the will of God. And in every way possible, he wanted that to be accomplished. This is why, by the way, God told Avram to sacrifice Yitzchak. But the order not to sacrifice Yitzchak came through an angel. Why? It's very simple. Because in God, in the realms of spirituality, God measured Avram in his will. And in his will it was done. So for God to make a statement, Avram, I don't want you to do it, is not accurate. Because Avram did it. He did it already in the world of angels that are separated from God and they live in this world of re and they ascend to this, this world of the physical an angel can say Abraham don't do it because angels talk in the, in, the, in the vernacular of the physical world and in the physical world it wasn't done but in the vernacular of spirituality in God's vocabulary it was done so God couldn't say to Abraham don't do it it was done and this is what the Medrash means when God said to Abraham, go take your son and sacrifice your son, and God said the word Haleu, bring him up on the altar, at that point in Avram's spiritual development, it required to sacrifice Yitzchak. 
because we only count the reality of action. But Avram generated so much will and didn't leave one vestige of resistance to the will of God that by the time he was finished with the preparations and with the devotion and the thinking of doing it, it was done. So then the word Vahaleyu took on a new meaning. Before Avram developed the realms of will and, he, and totally engulfed the realms of his will with God's will. So the word Vahaleyu meant reality means to do. And the word Vahaleyu actually meant bring him up, sacrifice him. But that word Vahaleyu changes it changes when Avram uh, leaves no nook and cranny open in the realms of Ratzon. Then it's done. Then the word Vahaleyu, it's done already. It's done already. It's done by Vahaleyu. You don't have to actually sacrifice it. Sa sacrifice Isaac. So God is not giving some kind of a cute communication to, to, to Avram. Ha ha, I never meant it. No, when God said it, he meant it. Vahaleyu meant sacrifice. But Avram, by, what he, by, by his total giving over of will to God, that constituted having accomplished it. So now the word Vahaleyu that before would have required the reality of sacrifice didn't require it at all. <clears throat> it's no wonder that Nachmanides says that this becomes the very basis, the source of the whole concept of all sacrifices. I'm sure we're all troubled besides the issue of cruelty to animals. What is going through all of the slaughter process and the, the, the sprinkling of the blood and the burning of the, of the animal have to do with any kind of a spiritual development on the person's part? So what does Nachmanides say? You know what Nachmanides says? Nachmanides says that when a person goes through sacrifice, especially sin sacrifice, he should think that everything that I'm doing to the animal should really happen to me. This seems to be a source for fantasy land. I mean, the Ramban is encouraging fantasy land. Imagine. And the Nachmanides says, and the source for this whole thing is the Akedah. You know what Nachmanides means? What Nachmanides means is that before Abraham came on the scene, a person didn't have the discipline and the intensity of concentration and will that it should be so well developed that it's as if it's happening to me. In other words, that whole, in other words, man would retain vestiges of resistance to God and could not imagine it and could not envision that this is really, really what should happen to me if I go against God's will. But by Avram developing the whole realm of thought, the whole realm of will, by developing that whole and extracting that whole realm of will, a human being has the ability to put himself, to give himself that power of meditation, that power of will, to align himself with God. It's a discipline, it's a concentration. It's a giving over. It's a dedication. That was what Avram, that's what Avram developed. And therefore, on that basis of the development of Ratzon, the development of one's will, that one's will should align itself with God's will and not with one's own will, the phenomenon of sacrifice becomes possible. I'll take questions soon. Okay? Now...
Let's go a little deeper. Let's dig a little deeper. You want to know the truth? The truth of the matter is that when God looks at us, God's not looking so much for what in reality happens. Because what in reality happens very often is beyond my control. I don't know how I'm going to. I can want to do something and never be able to do it. I want to go to shul one morning. The shul is three miles away, and I really, really want. And I get into my car, and the start is dead. That's the end of davening with the minion that morning. God doesn't measure us primarily but what, by what is accomplished. In our society, in our uh, industrialized society, we measure all, everything, success, spiritual development, everything is, did it happen? All right? Did it happen? The truth of the matter is that the question, did it happen, is not the real question. Because did it happen is not in my rishus, it's not in my realm. Because very often I want to make something happen, I'm determined to make it happen, and it doesn't. Because it's beyond me. So what is my area of development? What is my area of choice? What is my area of creativity? My area of choice in creativity is in the wanting, in developing the will to do. And that's where we're judged, primarily. When a person wants to do something and it doesn't get done because circumstances don't allow it, when God looks at the person, God says, tough nuggies, you didn't do it. It's not true. God, who is a chaker lev, God, who knows the inside of a human being, analyzes the inside of the human being and says, did you really want? And if you really wanted, in God's cheshbonus, in God's calculations, you made it happen. It's done. Now, were it not for Avram that developed this whole concept of machshava, were it not for Avram, we wouldn't be able to reach these levels of the reality of will. But after Avram, in other words, totally developed this area of dedication to the will of God, we too have the ability to access in that area, in that, in that realm. Let me share with you something which is very interesting. The Gemara says, the Talmud says, that when God began the creation of the world, he really wanted, a, uh, he wanted the creation of the world to work with justice, strict justice, the letter of the law. And he saw that the world would never be able to go on existing that way, so he added to the aspect of justice the, ax, uh, the aspect of compassion. Now, all of the commentaries explain that there is no... Uh, mistake in God's process of thinking. He thought to do it this way, he saw that it wouldn't work, so he changed his mind and he did it this way. He wanted to do it with strict justice. He saw that it wouldn't work, so he changed his mind and he said, I got to spice it with a lot of compassion. There's no beginning, you know, I thought this way and then I changed my mind. There's no changing of mind in, in Jewish theology on God's part. So what's, what is going on here? So many commentaries say, that what he thought came true and what he did came true. What does this mean? So some Hasidic masters say like this, God thought to work the world with justice and then the reality of the world he spiced with compassion. What does this mean? That when he looks at a human being, he looks at the human being on two agendas, on two levels on the level of what did you want to do and what did you do. 
on the level of what you actually got done, God recognizes that there are all kinds of limitations. And God is sympathetic and God is compassionate. In the reality, there's lots of compassion. But what God says is that even though in the reality I know all of your weaknesses and all of that, and I will deal with you with compassion, but one thing I'm going to be very, very particular about, you're wanting. Because your wanting is in, 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 within, your, within your, your access. The fact that you don't always get things done because of environment, because of other limitations, I am sympathetic to that. I will extend compassion. So, in other words, it's, it's playing with the words of the Chazal. He wanted to do it. He thought to do it with justice. But when he did, made the world, in reality, he did it with compassion. What the commentaries say is that what we're really being told is how God judges thought and how does he judge action. Action, he judges with lots of compassion because he recognizes that there are a lot of things that limit us, that are beyond our control. But our machshava, our want, our desire, our, our dedication, this is something we can't just decide we want or don't want. It's something that we have to develop. It's something that we have to nurture. But our thought, our want, those things are ultimately in our control. <coughs> With this understanding, we understand why a Nisayan, a test in particular, binding of Isaac, is a creation. Because every other creation in the world is a creation because after everything is said and done, there's something in front of you. The greatest creation of all is when there isn't something in front of you and it's considered as if it is. That's the, the greatest creation of all. That's the greatest crea creativity. In other words, if I just physically bring something into being, sure, I'm creative. It wasn't here before, now it's here. But the greatest measure of creativity is where something doesn't exist and I can make it as if it is. That's the greatest creativity. And that's what Abraham accomplished with the Akeda. So when we talk about Bracious being a book of Yitzira, being a book of creation, in relationship to test, this is how we understand it. The development that will is considered in the realms of reality is, is creative. Normally one would say, unless it happens, it's not creative. If you just want it, it's nothing. Avram made the statement, no. A human being has the ability to generate such will that it's, it's considered as if it's here. It's as if it's, as if it's accomplished. <laughs> now, with this basis, we also understand the concept of We eat from Abraham. You know what it means that we eat from Abraham? Because after everything is said and done, there's, a, there's an adage, in it, it, you know, that's a very common adage. Somebody's complaining, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. What do we tell them? We never tell it to ourselves, but we tell it to others. If you want to do it, you can do it. What we're being told is right, that when we feel that we cannot accept the will of God, we can't go through, and we say we can't do it. God's response to that is, the will is there. Avram created the will. Avram left no, no place open that would conflict God's will. He already blazed the path of will. So the want is in you. 
In other words, the idea that a person says it's impossible, so you say it's only impossible if you don't want. What we're being told in our relationship to Avram is that every Jew really, really deep down wants. If every Jew really wants, hasn't Avram created everything for us? Hasn't Avram already created the greatest possibility for us to accomplish? Because we know once we want, it'll get done. Avram created. Avram created that the, the personality of the Jew can want. And if the personality of the Jew can want, the reality that comes forth from it is just a natural progression. That's the end result. You put a seed in the ground, something is going to grow out. Avram put the seed in the ground. He developed the realm of the, the spiritual personality of the Jew wanting God's want, wanting God's will. So now when a person comes and says, this Nisayan is too difficult for me, I can't conform to this challenge, and so on and so forth, the answer that comes back is, why not? You want. No, I don't want. No, you do want. Avram put it in you. Avram put it in you. Sometimes we have a challenge to find that spiritual potential within ourselves, but it's there. He took the knife. So Rashi says, why is it called Ochel food? Because all generations eat off Avram. What does that mean they are eating off Avram? They're eating off the will that he developed to be consistent with God's will. We eat off it because once the will is there, action becomes natural to the will. Now, <coughs> we see here also the convergence of the purpose of the person, the purpose of God, and the purpose of the world. They all come together in this particular test. They all come together. Because obviously, if you tell a person, if you tell a person that the realms of want and the realm of your will being consistent with God's will has already been blazed, uh, blazed out, so this serves to the reality of my being able to be successful. It serves the purpose of the world in terms of what has to be accomplished for the world. The message that we tell the world is, world, you'll get to your goal because the seeds of your success have been planted already and, and God's purpose for the world, God's vested interest in the world will be reached. If everything would only be the reality of what gets accomplished, right, we wouldn't have a leg to stand on. But being because God is very, is, it considers it very, very important, our want, we can stand before God and say to God, God, the reality of this past year or the reality of my life has been not consistent with your will. But you know deep, deep down that I want to do it and I'm striving in that direction. Without Avram, that's a lot of baloney. Who says you really want? But after Avram, that's a qualified statement. The will is really there. It's a question of bringing the will from the realms of potential to the realms of reality. <coughs> With 
with this we understand what I started with this, this evening. With this we understand that the angels were created by what Avram wanted to do. And they began crying because they were afraid that Avram would actually go through it. And if Avram would actually go through it, they would destroy those angels because that wasn't God's will. That's how we started off the evening. Who All the angels that cried a moment before the sacrifice of Isaac were the ones that Avram himself created. And they cried because if Avram would go through with it, that would destroy them because that already would not be God's will. That's a very mystical interpretation to the crying of angels. But after the discussion that we had this evening, we understand very, very well what's going on over here. The point of the whole Akeda is the concept that we create energy by Ratzon, by will. We create environment by will. We create angels. We create Malachim. We create angels with our will. Will is not insignificant. Will cannot be dismissed. Will is something that has to be nurtured and developed. It is the area of man's development. It is the area of man's creativity. What man, how a person develops in terms of will. And that's the whole point. What the point of this commentary is, is that these angels are saying is that we thrive off the realms of will. We were intended to be that which is created from will. The world of action is a contradiction to the spiritual energy of what's going on here. The point in the whole event of Avram is the statement that will creates. Not action. Action is, not, is, a, is, is going in the, is a different direction. Action is saying that will doesn't count until reality. And that's what the angels are saying. The angels are saying that the accomplishment, the creativeness of this particular event is that will creates. That's who we are. Don't destroy us. Don't destroy that statement. Don't let Avram go through into the world of, of reality and the world of doing. The accomplishment of the Akedah is that somebody can create because he wants. That's what the angels are crying about. We see it. The angels are scared they're going to go out of existence. It's much deeper than just the angels are afraid they're going to go out of existence. The angels are saying that there is a tremendous gift that's been given to this world that will create. If Avram goes through with it, that, 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 that phenomena that will create is lost. That's lost. And that's what the angels are saying. That's the Bechia. On a mystical level, that's the deeper meaning symbolically of, of the angels crying. In the literal sense, it means that with the way the commentary says it. But on the deeper level, this is what's going. This is what's going on. It's no wonder that the Akeda is a theme of Rosh Hashanah, because when we come to the day of Rosh Hashanah, which is a day of judgment, and we haven't even cleaned up our act, that's ten days later on Yom Kippur. It's no wonder that we look into the reservoirs of the Akeda. Because the Akedah is the only thing in, in, in the spiritual genes that we can point to to say that if I today stand before you and say, but I want to be good, and I want to be a loyal servant, and I want to be a, a dedicated soldier, that it can mean anything. And God can't say on the day of Rosh Hashanah when we hold the shofar in our hand, 
which reminds God of the Akkad and say, will doesn't mean anything. What do you mean will doesn't mean anything? Will means a lot. Avram made will into, into, into a tremendous reality. <coughs> There's a lot to be learned from this and from all the whole concept of testing. If I could become a little bit psychological, one of the greatest feats that we have to accomplish in any test is because there is an inner resistance to accepting Hashem. The whole idea of accepting is very anti our whole personality. And it's because in the inside of our personality we don't want to accept. That's what makes an Nisayan so difficult, as I referred to before. Who asked you to send this to me? I didn't ask for it. I didn't order it. And so on and so forth. And I'm saying it in very, very coarse ways. But deep, deep within the, the, the personality of the person, what is the person struggling with? God wants one thing for me, and I want something else. Now, if a person believes that God doesn't want anything and God just dumps me with random events, then the person has a different problem with a test. But if a person is a mammon, if a person does believe, and God makes something happen in the person's life which is challenging and difficult, and the person...